Our topic, as I said this evening, is faith, and it connects very closely with what we discussed last Wednesday when we gathered together and considered the topic of repentance. And again, just to step back a little bit and understand where faith enters the picture, we have to go back in our look at the application of salvation, we have to go back to this doctrine called regeneration. Regeneration is something that God does on His own. Something that God does of His own good pleasure when He makes a sinner, a dead sinner, alive. Before regeneration, the sinner is utterly incapable of exercising any thoughts, any desires, any worship that would be pleasing to God, that would be appropriate, that wouldn't be filled with evil and selfish motivations. Total depravity leaves the sinner incapable. But regeneration changes all of that when God, through His Holy Spirit, breathes life into the dead sinner the very first experience that that regenerated sinner now feels is what we call conversion. Conversion. It's the first conscious breaths of the regenerated sinner. His first true spiritual experience. Conversion is something we experience at the core of our being. Now, that experience of conversion, as we have discussed already, is characterized by two components. Biblical conversion has two components that are so closely intertwined that it's difficult to separate them. In fact, we cannot separate them in terms of time or or sequence. It's difficult to point to what's prior and what's subsequent. They happen at the same time. And these two components are repentance... We looked at that last week. Repentance is defined, as we even heard this evening already, repentance is defined as godly sorrow for one's sin and a resolve to turn from it. And at that same time, there is the expression of faith. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. So when we think of the doctrine of conversion, this first experience of the regenerated sinner, we can look at it in terms of the two sides to to the same coin. That on the one side, and you could on this one side define it as the negative aspect, it's the turn away from something. It's repentance. It's the turn away from sin and sinfulness and all that is connected with that realm. And it is also on the other side, the positive aspect, the turn towards Christ. That's biblical faith. You see, in in our world today, there's a lot of quasi-repentance, a turn away from certain practices, certain behaviors, because people begin to see the consequences of those particular sins, and they they turn turn away from, but they turn to other things rather than Christ. Some turn to moral reforms, some turn to some other kinds of religion that will help them get through, but they don't turn to Christ. That repentance isn't biblical. 
A biblical repentance inevitably has with it a turn towards Jesus Christ, and that is biblical faith. And we see this expressed, for example, so concisely in Paul's letter to the, to the Thessalonians, which he writes a few months after he had been in Thessalonica and brought the gospel there, seeing the Lord plant a church there. And he writes 1 Thessalonians to them six months, around six months after their conversion. And, and he makes this statement, which is one of the most concise statements on conversion you'll find anywhere. He, he says, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. That's biblical conversion. And we see these two elements here. We see repentance. It's a turn from idols. And we see the faith. It's a turn to God. So this evening we're going to look at faith. What is faith? That term is used frequently in our world today. It's not a rare term. Repentance is much rarer. Faith is, the term faith is found everywhere. You'll, you'll hear it on the TV. You'll, you'll hear it on the street. You'll hear it at work. Faith is not exactly a rare term, but it is a greatly misunderstood term. And that's sad because when we look at the Bible, we, we see a book about faith. So it behooves us to understand this term very carefully. So when we look at our key terms and definitions, we're just going to look at one of them, but we're going to look and define, we're going to look at and define several components of this term faith. What is faith? How do we define faith biblically? Well, we can turn to Hebrews 11 verse 1 as a start. Hebrews 11 verse 1 defines faith with this simple definition. Faith the writer of Hebrews says, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, in that very simple definition of faith, the writer of Hebrews points to some some key elements that are very important to recognize here. First of all, he uses the term assurance and conviction. It's not just an understanding of something, as we're going to see, it's a conviction. It's deep-rooted. Moreover, it is conviction or assurance that is placed in something else. Not in self, but in something hoped for. And, and the reference there of that which is hoped for has to do with promise. So it's a certainty. It's a conviction. It's a, an assurance in the contents of a promise. Something that is hoped for. Something that is longed for. Something that is not yet realized. Now keep that in mind as I give you some other definitions here of biblical faith. Wayne Grudem defines saving faith this way. He says, it is trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life with God. John Murray, in his excellent book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, defines it similarly when he says this, faith is a whole-souled movement of self-commitment to Christ for salvation from sin and its consequences. Now, looking at those definitions, let me give you a very simple definition of what faith really is. 
Faith is belief that God's promise to me is real. Faith is trust that God's promise to me is real. Now, what do I base that definition on in in addition to Hebrews 11 verse 1? Well, it has to go back to the very first expression of saving faith that we see most carefully articulated in, in the very first book of the Bible. It's Genesis chapter 15 and the example of Abram. And in Genesis chapter 15 verses 5 and 6, we see this concept of faith expressed and, and detailed. And it's expressed and detailed to, to, in such a way that it becomes the paradigm for faith throughout the rest of Scripture. And this is what we read in those verses. And he, that is the Lord, took him, that is Abram, outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And the Lord said to Abram, So shall your descendants be. And note Abram's response. Then he believed the Lord And he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Here is an expression of saving faith expressed by an Old Testament saint at the very beginning, really, of the the unfolding of the plan of redemption. God promised to him and Abraham said, I believe that. It is a promise for me. I grab onto it. I believe it. That's faith. And that, that then becomes the paradigm for faith in the rest of the plan of redemption as God continues to unfold that plan and give more revelation, more words, more promises. And the saints of the Old Testament and the saints of this New Testament era have different levels and quantities of revelation, but were saved by the same or through the same essence. It is a trust, a belief in the promise that God has revealed to me. That's saving faith. So whatever revelation God has given us in his word up until this point, faith is grabbing hold of that word, of that promise, and believing it for me. Whatever God has promised to me, that I believe, I trust as true and for me. Now, we need to define faith, however, a little bit further. And I want to talk about three elements of faith that will help to bring this into greater clarity. Three elements of biblical faith. And you've probably heard this. During the Reformation in particular, three terms, they're in the Latin. You don't need to remember the Latin. I have them in the notes there. What I do want you to remember are the concepts that stand behind these these three terms. But these terms are often associated with defining true faith. And these are the three terms. Notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Three Latin terms that the reformers in particular use to define biblical faith. And I want to work through these as we continue to define biblical faith. Let's look at the first one, notitia. What is notitia? Well, as I said, it's a Latin term 
But this Latin term in particular refers to the content of faith. The facts that are believed or that are understood. That's noticia faith. A recognition, an understanding of the facts. What are the facts? And so expressing this element of faith, which is essential, the believer would say something like this. I acknowledge and understand that these are the facts about Jesus and the gospel he offers. That's the first element. It's an acknowledgement and understanding of the facts of the gospel. The facts of the promise that is held out to you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you understand the facts. That there is a Savior who arrived in time, in history. His name, his name is Jesus. He lived a perfect life. Son of God and Son of Man. And that he served as the atonement for sin, as he himself took upon the sins of all who would ever believe upon himself on the cross. And that he was crucified there. He died, was placed in a tomb, and three days later to show the vindication of his life, of his atonement, he was raised from the dead. Basically, those elements. Yes, I understand, I acknowledge those things to be the facts about Jesus and that by that death, he atoned for sin and that sin can even atone for me. Basic facts like that. We see this element of faith Referred to, implied in Romans chapter 10 verse 17, for example, where Paul says that faith does come from what? From hearing, from the hearing of truth. There are facts that need to be heard. Faith cannot happen there where there has been no hearing, where there has been no presentation of gospel facts. It's impossible, Paul says, because faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ, speaking of the propositional truth related to the person of Jesus. Yes, faith must include knowledge. But, note this, a mere intellectual understanding of the facts about Jesus and his sacrifice for sinners is an insufficient response to the gospel. If that's where you stop and say, yes, I recognize that that's part of the Christian gospel. If that's all you have, that is not biblical faith. You've got an element of it, but it's not biblical because biblical faith is so much more. Look, for example, at James 2 verse 19, where James says that even demons believe facts about God. Demons believe that God is one, they shudder even. That's not enough, but it is essential, but not enough. The next element is what we call a census. That's the Latin term, again, a census. But here's the idea behind that Latin term. A census refers to intellectual assent to the facts, an actual agreement That these things are not only facts related to the gospel, but they are true. They're historically true. Jesus did live 
his life here on earth. He was actually historically crucified on a cross for sin. He rose again the third day. A census faith recognizes those things to be true. And so in this, the believer says, or the person who has this kind of faith says, I not only recognize that these are facts about Jesus and the gospel that he offers, that's the first part, the notitia, but I also agree that these facts are indeed true. I give my assent. I give my agreement. And we find this implied even in our definition of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1. That faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Indeed, faith must include the affirmation that the facts of the gospel are real. That they're historical. That they're sure. That they are not myths. Faith must include that. But note this, mere intellectual agreement with the truthfulness of the gospel is not an adequate response to the gospel. It's not enough. It is not what truly defines the complexity of biblical faith. Biblical faith is not just an awareness of facts. Biblical faith is not even the mere assent that those facts are true. And we can see that, for example, in Nicodemus in in, uh, John chapter 3, this Pharisee who goes to Jesus and even acknowledges that he has come from God and that no one can do these signs unless God is with them. But Jesus answered and says, you're not born again. You see, Nicodemus had some Awareness, some understanding, and, and, and even assent, but he did not possess, at this point, true biblical faith. We could even look at King Agrippa. You can turn there later at Acts chapter 26, verses 27-28, where Paul preaches the gospel to King Agrippa and says to him, Agrippa, do you believe that prophets, I know you do. So Paul recognizes that even King Agrippa understood the prophecies, and even agreed that the prophecies were true. But what was Agrippa's problem? Didn't have the right kind of faith. And so Agrippa responds and says, wait a minute, Paul, you're not trying to persuade me to become a follower of Christ, are you? Follower of Jesus, and and did not express true biblical faith. And that's what leads us to this third element, fiducia. Now, before we get into this, I want to say this, that probably even in our midst, there are men who can check off point number one and point number two. Can, they can check off notitia. Yeah, I believe the, that they, these are the facts about Jesus and the promise he offers in the gospel. And they can check off point number two and say, and I even say that these things are historically true. But this is where the rubber meets the road. Point number three, fiducia. What is fiducia? This term refers to the personal trust in the facts of faith. Here, the believer says this, I not only recognize that these are the facts about Jesus and the promise that he offers in the gospel. That's notitia. And not only that, but I also 
affirm that these, th- these, these facts are true and the promise that he offers is true. That's a census. But I also believe that those facts are for me. Here is the element of personal trust. Here is where the first person singular pronouns come in. These are not just some kind of objective facts that may be even true. But these are facts that relate to me. That Jesus came and he lived a perfect life for me. For me personally. And he died on the cross for my sins for me. This, this was necessary for me. And, and that he rose again on the third day for me. This is Vidusha faith. We can see this in several other texts where we have this Vidusha element inferred. Such as in John 1 verse 12. Where John writes this. But as many as received him. Notice the object of the reception and that it is reception. It's not just mental assent. It is receiving Christ. To them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. Look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son Now, there's a lot of facts there, and you may even affirm them as true, but here is is what counts, that whoever believes in him, not just believes him, but believes in him, expressing attachment, expressing relationship, immersion into these facts, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, or Romans 10 verse 13, which expresses it also very profoundly, where where Paul says that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that verb to call upon is not simply the mere utterance of the name Jesus. It is that desperation. It is that call that says, Jesus Only you can help me. Only you can help me. There are no other alternatives. I'm lost. I am dead. I'm a sinner. I merit only eternal damnation. Jesus, only you can help me. And that calling comes from the depths of one's heart as trust is placed in Jesus as the only solution, the only hope. John Murray summarizes these three elements of faith this way. Faith is knowledge passing into conviction, and it is conviction passing into confidence. Faith cannot stop short of self-commitment to Christ a transference of reliance upon ourselves and all human resources to reliance upon Christ alone for salvation. It is a receiving and resting upon Him. End quote. 
Now, as I said, it is this last element, fiducia, which is so important to understand. Our world, even among the organized church, the world and the church is filled with people who have notitia faith and have a census faith, but have no fiducia faith. And this is why the reformers were so emphatic on on dealing with this this third element on fiducia. This is what makes a believer a true believer. This is what describes saving faith when the, when, when the, when the faith reaches fiducia. Now, it's very important if we contrast this with other kinds of Christianity or, or even you could even say other kinds of Christian cults. And, and in fact, why, you have to ask the question, why did the reformers emphasize fiducia so much? Because in the Roman Catholic Church, there was no emphasis on fiducia. In fact, it was said you cannot really express that in Christ. Yes, you had to have notitia. Yes, you had to have a census. But your fiducia must be placed in the church. Your trust must be placed in Rome. Something else. And that marks Roman Catholicism. But you could look at all other false versions of Christianity. And at this level of fiducia, there's always something else. If it's mainline liberal Protestantism, what are, where is the fiducia placed? In self. In works. That's ultimately where the personal trust is placed. That's ultimately where the personal first-person pronouns are used. I, me, my works. My tithing, my prayers, my atonement for sin, what I do. That's mainline Christianity today in North America, in Roman Catholicism, in Eastern Orthodoxy. There's always something else that occupies the place of this fiducia. But the biblical gospel and what the reformers emphasize so much is that there's only one thing that occupies this place, only one object of fiducia, it is Jesus Christ. There is only one person with whom you have to do, Jesus. Biblical faith, in its manifold essence, looks outside of self. It looks outside of the organized church. It looks outside of creed. We sang that even This evening, my faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Biblical faith looks outside of self and casts oneself at the feet of Jesus as the only hope of salvation. It abandons all confidence in personal ability and places all trust in Christ's ability. The true believer believes that everything that the gospel has to say about him as a sinner is true and relates to him. The believer believes that everything that the gospel has to say about Jesus Christ as a Savior, is true and relates to Him. And the believer believes that everything that the gospel promises 
is exactly what he needs. That's biblical faith. And the true believer, he may stand and does stand in awe and wonders how Jesus Christ could die for him. But the true believer does not doubt that Jesus Christ died for him. There is a difference. Hopefully all of you still have not found the answer to the question of why and how. How could God send his son, a holy, spotless, blameless one, take on human flesh, live a perfect life, and then die for a sinner like me? Why? That boggles my mind. That is the greatest mystery. But that he did it for me. That's not under question. That's fiducia. That's personal faith. Again, my faith has found a resting place. Not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. I like how Charles Spurgeon puts it. My hope lives not because I am not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, he is my righteousness. My faith rests not upon what I am or shall be or feel or know, but in what Christ is, in what he has done, and in what he is doing now for me. Notice all the personal pronouns there. For me, to me, for me, for me, for me. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about faith. I want to provide some essential characteristics as we continue to develop our understanding here. Let me give you another eight. And if you're paying attention to the notes, you're going to note that these eight characteristics of biblical faith mirror the eight characteristics of biblical repentance. There's just some changing in, in, the, in the phraseology. And that's done intentionally because, as I said, biblical faith and biblical repentance are two sides of the same coin. And so their essential qualities are the same. So first and foremost, we must recognize this. Faith is a necessary component of salvation. Like repentance, faith is necessary. Faith is necessary. If there is no faith, there is no salvation. Hebrews 11 verse 6 states this clearly. The writer says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. The writer is saying, look to the benevolence of God, and the promises of God. And the book of Hebrews is filled with all these 
promises and descriptions of the benevolence of God manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, who is superior to everything. And this was a message that the audience of Hebrews needed to hear because the audience of Hebrews was a mixed audience. And there was a, a great many in that audience who had some kind of a, of a notitia faith and maybe even an ascensus faith, but had no fiducia faith. And so the writer writes and says, without faith, fiducia faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Faith is a necessary component of salvation. John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Faith is a necessary component of salvation. Number two, faith is a necessary effect of regeneration. We talked about that a little bit earlier on this evening already, that it is regeneration that causes repentance. Now, it happens all kind of at the same time, and it's, it's, it's difficult to try and separate those things chronologically. But when we look at cause and effect, we identify regeneration as the cause of faith. Faith is the effect of regeneration. Notice John verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. As many as received him, to them he, Jesus, gave the right to become children of God, even to those, now get this, who believe in his name, who were born, not of Blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who believe because they were born of God. Look at 1 John 5 verse 1. States it very simply. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. The flesh cannot produce True faith. But where true faith is present, regeneration has caused it. Again, John Murray says this, regeneration is inseparable from its effects. And one of those effects is faith. Without regeneration, it is morally and spiritually impossible for a person to believe in Christ. That is, believe in the salvific sense. But when a person is regenerated, it is morally and spiritually impossible for that person not to believe. Number three, faith is inseparable from repentance. I won't spend a lot of time here. We looked at the same point last week. These two are inseparable. And we can even see this, whether it's in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, uh, a turning away from idols to God, or in Acts chapter 20, verses 20 to 21, where Paul summarizes his message, his gospel preaching, and it is a testimony to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. These are two sides of the same coin. And, and even though in some places you'll have repentance mentioned without faith, and other places, faith mentioned without repentance, 
we know that whenever we see the one, the other is there, even if it's not mentioned. One writer, John Murray, says this, The faith that is unto salvation is a penitent faith, and the repentance that is unto life is a believing repentance. But if faith is directed to salvation from sin, there must be hatred of sin and the desire to be saved from it. Such hatred of sin involves repentance, which essentially consists in turning from sin unto God. It is impossible to disentangle faith and repentance. Saving faith is permeated with repentance, and repentance is permeated with faith. Number four, faith is a gift from God. Faith is a gift from God. We can turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which expresses this so clearly. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And when Paul says that it is the gift of God, he's referring to everything that has proceeded in that sentence. It. What is it? Salvation by grace through faith. All of that is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith, like repentance, is a gift. It cannot be produced by the flesh. Philippians 1 verse 29, uh, Paul is in this context speaking of sufferings, and he makes this interesting statement. Some of us don't like it. I mean, who, who wants to suffer? But notice what Paul states, and he's really emphasizing this about suffering, but don't miss what he says about believing. Philippians 1 verse 29, For it has been granted for Christ's sake to you, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Emphasis on suffering. But Paul makes this analogy or this connection and says, in the same way that that faith is a gift, the ability to believe in him is a gift, so suffering is also a gift, a granting from God. Steve Lawson says, No corpse can raise itself from the grave. Neither can any spiritually dead sinner believe upon Christ. God must act sovereignly to make the sinner spiritually alive before he can exercise saving faith. Saving faith is a gift that God must give. Number five, faith is transformative in nature. Again, in this world, you'll come across many people who will claim a belief in Jesus, and yet their lives in no way differ from those who reject him vehemently. And it's this idea that, Again, faith is just simple assent or understanding of some basic facts. Born of a virgin, died on the cross, rose from the dead. Okay. And and the world is filled with those kind of people. And that faith is unbiblical. It's false faith, counterfeit faith. And it can be easily seen in the fruit or lack thereof. Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. And this is the idea that when God grants faith, that faith 
immediately becomes operative. It begins to produce fruit. It is a paradigm shift, just like repentance was. Biblical faith is a paradigm shift that encompasses the whole person. That fiducia trust in the promises offered in the gospel, for me, result in a whole change of person. His cognition is now different. His understanding of the world, of God, of himself is different. His affections are different. What he loves is now completely changed forever. And his volition is changed. How he makes decisions is now changed by this gift of faith. MacArthur and Mayhew write this in Biblical Doctrine. In short, faith obeys. It compels one to act in accordance with the truth that one professes to believe. At conversion, saving faith does nothing but passively receive the provision of Christ. Yet true faith never remains passive. It immediately goes to work, not as a means of earning divine favor, but as a consequence of having received the grace of God that works mightily within us. True faith is transformative. It never leaves the person in his former state. It brings fruit. Now, as we said last week, it is important to distinguish between faith and its fruits, just as we said last week, between repentance and its fruits. Repentance inevitably produces fruit if it is genuine. Faith inevitably produces fruit, obedience, if it is genuine. We still make the distinction, though there is that connection. And that is because that exercise, that expression of repentance or faith, is utterly transformative. Number six, faith requires knowledge. Now, according to the world, these are some of the slogans we'll hear, right? Faith is the opposite of reason. How many times have we heard that? Uh, When you cannot know, just believe, right? Or you have to believe to make it real. Or believe with your heart, not your head. Those Slogans are all very much very popular in the world today, but that is not biblical faith. Biblical faith requires knowledge. We've talked about this already. We could look at Romans chapter 10 verses 8 and 9, that you must confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Notice that he said Jesus, referring to the historical person of Jesus. You need to have enough knowledge to say that that historical person is the Lord of the universe. And that you must believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That assumes a knowledge of the the atonement on the cross and God's vindication of his son through the resurrection. That must be present. Paul goes on in Romans 10 to give this set of rhetorical questions. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? As Spurgeon says, faith is not a blind thing, for faith begins with knowledge. It is not a speculative 
thing, for faith believes facts of which it is sure. It is not an impractical, dreamy thing, for faith trusts and stakes its destiny upon the truth of revelation. Or as J. Gresham Machen has stated, he states this, But if any one fact is clear, on the basis of this evidence, it is that the Christian movement, he's talking about the true church here, at its inception was not just a way of life in a modern sense. It's not just a way of morality. It's not just a, a choice of ethics, you could say. But he continues and says this, but a way of life founded upon a message. Founded upon revelation of divine knowledge. Number seven, faith is an ongoing way of life. And this we find from start to finish of the scriptures. It's so beautifully expressed in that statement from Habakkuk when he said the righteous will live by faith. Not just be saved by faith, but will live by faith. And Paul expresses this as well in Galatians 2 verse 20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. And note again the personal pronouns here. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I live by faith. Hebrews 10 verse 39 states it similarly. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. But of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. In other words, when biblical faith is present, it continues on as a way of life. And it is that faith which preserves the believer until the very end. The Christian life is the life of walking according to faith. Of living according to the promises of God. And it is also a life of growing in faith. And I'm reminded here of that man in Mark 9 verses 22 to 24 who wanted his son to be healed and approaches Jesus and explains to Jesus that this demon is throwing his son into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But he approaches Jesus and says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, if you can, don't you believe? Where's the fiducia that I can do this for you? And here's the right response. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And that's the prayer, not only of this man, but of the Christian. We, we do have that initial fiducia faith that marks all true believers, but we find as we go through life that, that it is weak. It is small. And we must constantly pray, Lord, help my unbelief belief. Finally, number eight, faith does not atone for sin. We said this last week about repentance. Repentance isn't atonement. Repentance doesn't satisfy the wrath of God 
And you could say this, faith doesn't satisfy the wrath of God because that is only something that Christ did. I like how B.B. Warfield expressed it. He said this, It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively, not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or the nature of faith, but in the object of faith. So that we could not more radically misconceive it than by transferring to faith even the smallest fraction of the saving energy which is attributed in the scriptures solely to Christ himself. And this is what gives us hope because we do have weak faith. We do have imperfect faith. Some of that faith is because we just don't know enough and we're still growing. And some of that faith is because we we still struggle with various sins that we're in process of mortifying. If you're here and you're a true believer, you can say, amen, I struggle with this. But here's the good news. It's not that faith that saves you. It is the object upon which you have placed your faith that has saved you. It's Jesus Christ who has made atonement for sin. It's he who has propitiated, he who has redeemed you, it is Christ. And he is the object of this faith. Again, Machen says this, The efficacy of faith then depends not upon the faith itself, but upon the object of the faith, namely Christ. Faith is not regarded in the New Testament as itself a meritorious work or a meritorious condition of the soul but it is regarded as a means which is used by the grace of God the new testament never says that a man is saved on account of his faith but always that he is saved through his faith or by means of his faith faith is merely the means which the holy spirit uses to apply to the individual soul the benefits of Christ's death Now, tonight, I'm not going to get into the the practical implications of this, and there are many. I'm going to leave that to your homework. But as we do conclude tonight, I want to read a statement from John Owen that really pulls it all together and and really does give us the most most important implication that, that we have to deal with tonight. And it deals, again, with the fiducia element of faith. As I said, undoubtedly, there are men here that know a lot about Jesus, can even cite Bible passages from memory and would even say these things are true and may even argue for the inerrancy of the Bible, its inspiration, its authority, and so on. But there is the absence of fiducia faith where that truth, those promises have been connected with the first person pronouns that this is for me. And as I read John Owen, I want you to put yourself either in one of two categories. And I hope you're in the first category that as you hear of of this, you reflect upon the gift of faith God has given you. And these are precious words. You you have come to the point of accepting God's promises. and, And there's nothing so precious to you as hearing simply the gospel. 
Or perhaps you're in the second category. There is no third where you are not yet a true believer. You do not yet have true faith. As I read through this, you be praying that God would grant you this faith. This is how John Owen says or summarizes it. I'm speaking to all of you individually. This is somewhat of the word which Christ now speaks unto you. Will you die? Why will you die? Why will you perish? Why will you not have compassion on your own souls? Can your hearts endure? Or can your hands be strong in the day of wrath that is approaching? Look unto me and be saved. Come unto me and I will ease all of your sins, sorrows, burdens, and give rest to your souls. Come, I entreat you. Lay aside all procrastinations, all delays. Put me off no more. Eternity lies at the door. Do not so hate me as that you will rather perish than accept deliverance from me. End quote. This is the universal call of the gospel. And it is aimed at everyone in this room and everyone who might hear this. It is the universal call of the gospel. Do you have an answer. What is that answer? And like I said, hopefully you're of the category that says, this is precious. I could hear this all day long. This is what came to me once in my life at one point in history, and, and God granted me the gift of belief, and I fled to Christ, and He saved me. Or you're in that second group that's headed towards wrath. Why will you do that? Why do you insist on that path? Why do you hate Christ so much that you will resist his offer, his promise of the gospel? Come unto me. All you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest for your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious truth. And we do marvel at how you could save sinners like we are and were. But as those who pray to you as Father and those who have experienced this salvation, we cling to this precious promise, this truth, that you did send him for us. That is the most precious truth not just for some group out there somewhere, not just for some hypothetical 
crowd, but you sent him for me. And that as he hung there on the cross, he was thinking of me. And he was paying for my sins. And he was willing to give me life. And that is a precious promise. And we cling to it. And we pray for those who still hold it at hands or arm's length. Who still sit on the fence. Who still are intent to delay, to procrastinate. Lord, we pray you'd make their lives miserable until they would flee to your son, Jesus. And take him as their own Savior. We ask this in his name. Amen.